Welcome to Three Devs and a Maybe. Now introducing your show hosts, Michael Budd, Fraser Hart, Lewis Keynes, and Ed Mann. Hello and welcome to another episode of Three Devs and a Maybe. My name's Ed Mann and today we're joined by Jay Smith. How you doing, Jay? Yeah, I'm good. How are you? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's almost like we've done this before, Deja Vu. <laughs> this is what always the thing that happens when I start recording. I think, well, I'm going to ask you again how you're doing, you know, as it's like, you know, on record. So, you know, it's almost like, are you saying the same thing as before or are you lying to me? I don't know. <laughs> Well, there's plenty oh, we haven't spoken about yet. So, <laughs> yeah, exactly, absolutely, yeah. So, uh, just a little backstory for the audience. Um, so, as your audience, you know, I've been getting very much into Bitcoin, like a lot of people are at the moment. I'm specifically getting into like the internals of it, uh, kind of more than like kind of the outer crust of it. I'm more into like how you know how it works under the hood and kind of how the, like the blockchain, you know, and all these kind of things and the game theory behind it and stuff is working and super super interesting, super super interested in it. And uh, one person actually on my twitter feed that i met a couple of years ago for a friend actually uh he, he kind of you well you jay you know you kind of uh start you know you, you're kind of talking about this stuff and i'm like hang on a minute not many people i know talk about this stuff and uh you talk you know you have some very interesting insights and you actually are a trader in, in the cryptocurrency space and looking at your website and everything you seem to be you've seemed to be kind of you know been around you know with the cryptocurrency stuff for quite some time so i thought it'd be really cool to get you on the show and kind of pick your brain on a lot of uh different bits and bobs yeah, no, I got into cryptocurrency pretty early. Um, <laughs> Which is very, very good. <laughs> yeah. yeah it's, it's... So, so how did you get into it then? What, what, what sparked your insight into it? So a lot of people ask me this, and uh, the answer is somewhat disappointing in that I don't actually remember where, <laughs> where oh, I was You can make it up, though. This is great. You can yeah. just make it up. <laughs> I don't remember where I was first introduced, but I was in all of the kind of circles that got involved with it quite early. So I've always been into like futurology. Um, which is effectively the study of future technology. And so obviously at that point in time, blockchain was a future technology that people were kind of looking at and saying, oh, this could be a thing. Um, I've always been into esports, which is an early adopter for pretty much everything. Esports is what pushed you know, live streaming to become a thing that is now on Facebook and everywhere else, YouTube and, and whatnot. So I was just kind of in the right place. And I think I just got, kind of fell into it. Um, I spent about probably about two or three days just studying um how it works uh, as as you said earlier the game theory and you know what the incentives are for the miners and for the people using the network and how the value grows and stuff and uh yeah it just kind of made sense to me so i started pouring my paycheck into it every <laughs> <laughs> So did you get into any of like the mining? Because I suppose but when you got into it, was mining still actually like yeah, a, so, a thing you could do on GPUs and stuff? Yeah, so we were probably about like halfway through the, the GPU era, as I'll call it, on Bitcoin. Um, and I had, I actually had an AMD graphics card in my PC at home, because as I said, I play a lot of games. So yeah, I started mining. Um, I mined for about six months, and I think in total I earned about half a Bitcoin <laughs> um, off of one graphics card. Which is worth something now. I yeah. mean, that stuff I do scoff at now. Yeah, yeah, no, indeed. Um, in hindsight, probably should have kept it on for maybe another month or two, you know. But uh, at, towards towards the end of that time, uh, the ASICs were coming out. It was the time when there was uh, Bitfury and all this stuff. There were a lot of scams actually around it where people were paying a Bitcoin to buy a mining rig and then it just never arrived. <laughs> and they're probably missing that Bitcoin about now. This is this is the funny thing, though, isn't it? So, it, I mean, the, the 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 funny story, obviously, is that one of the highlighted ones that all the press make out is the the pizza situation, where someone paid like ten thousand Bitcoin for one pizza, 
and that is an expensive expensive pizza now yeah 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 incredibly expensive it was a british guy that did it actually it was american that put up a post on bitcoin talk and asked for a pizza uh, asked anyone to buy him a pizza and someone replied from the uk and they phoned america to order a pizza for him absolutely fantastic because it wasn't it the first like transaction like business kind of like yeah it's, it's the first transaction that really kind of gave it a value in people's heads <laughs> gave it a pizza value yeah yeah uh, <laughs> so, so, so following on from that then so how did you get into like trading and stuff because that's another thing that you you know you talk a lot about on your twitter feed yeah so i i had started trading um pretty young actually by the time i was like 14 i was watching cnbc and bloomberg in my spare time and kind of making virtual trades on on spreadsheets and just kind of looking at how i would perform if i was actually trading um i didn't have any money to trade obviously that is amazing <laughs> Um, by the time I was 18, um, I got uh, a small lump sum of money and and started trading with it. So like, you know, 500 pounds or so, a thousand pounds, somewhere in that range. And yeah, I just never stopped pretty much. And it's just kind of slowly grown and grown and grown from there. Um, and my family were incredibly skeptical at first. Uh, <laughs> my mum thought it was gambling. My dad thought that, <laughs> that it was just, you know, random and that I'd, I'd grow out of it and then and then he started kind of getting involved and, and he actually copies me now. So <laughs> That is insane. That is brilliant. There you go. That's one way to win them over is by earning money. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. So what what actually for, for the naive like me kind of thinking about trading, like, you know, it's a very, I would maybe class it as a very kind of volatile thing. Like, you know, I mean, there's wins and losses and stuff like that. And obviously it sounds like, you know, you play the game you know intelligently uh if you can you know it's not gambling if you know what you're doing or if you think you know you have yeah. like kind of um you know things to back it up whereas it being news or whatever you know you kind of in yeah things behind it so i'm just wondering yeah what actually is trading so so effectively there's there's two main sides of main two main schools of thought on how to trade one of them is called fundamentals and one of them is called technicals um and so they're these two different schools of analysis basically so fundamentals is basically about news cycles and looking at you know uh, who's who's working at the company what's their previous track record what kind of things are they looking to do and a bit of speculation on what where you think that could go so you could say well you know facebook has this massive social media network then maybe they're gonna make a netflix competitor and you kind of think about things like that and do these thought experiments about um where a company is likely to go based on the people that work there and previous news and things like that so like new hires and stuff that come in and stuff you follow yeah. them and work that's cool yeah, um, only at like you know the top level, so like sort of board level. You don't like every, every single person Facebook. Oh yeah, <laughs> you're not LinkedIn. Everyone coming in. <laughs> yeah, looking at their GitHubs and yeah, vetting them. Yeah, so well, that's that's the funny thing. You mentioned GitHub. So on on cryptocurrencies, GitHub is actually kind of part of fundamentals. You go on the GitHub and you look at how many people are you know committing to the code and and you know what other projects they've worked on in the past all these kind of things so you kind of get an idea of you know how big is the team that's building this uh, how much experience do they have are they building things totally different to what, what other people have done um so that's kind of how you evaluate cryptocurrencies compared to normal things uh technicals on the other hand are basically it's almost um it's almost like game theory and a lot of mathematics but basically uh for charts for for currencies and stocks and commodities and everything else um, most people use a candlestick chart and on there there are a bunch of tools that various mathematicians and traders have made over the time that effectively have become kind of self-fulfilling prophecies in predicting price movements so there are very common patterns that occur multiple times in a chart and you can look at pretty much any stock on the planet or uh, any currency and you can look through it and you'll find these same patterns reoccurring 
over and over again. And so technical analysis is basically pattern recognition and trying to predict which patterns are coming next and, and you know, how to buy in or, or sell at certain points in time based off of that information. So I use a combination of both. <laughs> Nice. Yeah. Cause so, you know, obviously in that case, so there's two things there. so with the cryptocurrency stuff saying, looking through GitHub and stuff, obviously a big thing there is white papers and things like that. Everyone's, you know, sending out white papers and, and kind of asking for money and whatnot. Uh, and, you know, obviously then it's the actual implementation stuff. So looking at commits, looking at who's active, looking at their you know, track records and stuff. So does that kind of, you know, looking at the internals and stuff like that really, you know, you benefit from having an understanding of code and understanding of kind of what's oh, different from this. So, so, I'm actually not a developer, um, which is kind of weird for a lot of cryptocurrency inv- investors, especially the early ones. Most of them were developers, and I'm I'm just not. Um, but I've always kind of been around developers. I know a lot of developers. I, I I know most of the you know the basic lingo of what a stack is and all the rest of it. Um, so so yeah, I, I look through GitHub and kind of just look a little bit at their backgrounds. I I can't look at the actual code, um, really. Uh, I can understand some bits of code in smart contracts and things because they're quite easily readable for Ethereum. But yeah, having that skill is definitely something that's really, really useful. And even if you don't have that skill, um, utilizing other people that do can can be a really good way of trading. There's a guy on YouTube called uh, Ivan on Tech, and he is a developer that just goes through code of cryptocurrencies and explains it to people. <laughs> I've heard of him. Yes, so. <laughs> that's cool. No, that's really interesting. And like, obviously, then looking through bips and stuff like the Bitcoin yes. improvement proposals and stuff, and seeing what's going on there. Yes, that's very important. That's very very important. Um, same thing with Dash as well. Dash has got um, effectively a, a fund built into it that people can propose ideas to um, and, and people vote on what to spend that money on. The community that owns Dash votes on what to spend the money on. So anyone can propose anything. Um, and it's really interesting to see what they do. So at the moment, they're advertising on flights across the Atlantic, for example. You go on a <laughs> flight and you watch a film, there's a Dash advertisement in front of it. Oh, that's insane, man. Yeah, th- th- I just, well, this is it. This is the boom, isn't it? And, you know, <laughs> it's such a volatile market now. And I mean, we've had little spikes in the past. And I would say like, I've only got into it probably six months ago, probably beforehand. And it, naively of me, I kind of just did, I dismissed it like as a technology. I didn't really look into the internals of it until I was like, well, this is a quite interesting and distributed ledgers. And I was thinking, how do you deal with a distributed trust and trustless tech? You know, how can I, how can I make a system where I don't trust you? I have to verify everything myself. Yeah. And we're all, you know, kind of in it together and incentives around that. Like, why would someone want to not screw the system or, you know, what's behind all that? Yeah. So why is it such a volatile market at this time? So I think um, it depends on how you measure volatility on if it even is volatile. So if you measure volatility based on how much it fluctuates um, on a daily basis, it's actually no more volatile. In fact, it's less volatile than something like Twitter, for example. So on a daily basis, it's not volatile at all. Of course, if you look at a year view, then Bitcoin goes up, you know, 500% and something else goes up 5%. There's a bit of a difference. Um, but I don't think it's really volatility. I think the trend in cryptocurrencies, is, especially Bitcoin, has always been this um, this parabolic upwards curve, effectively. Um, so it all it all kind of revolves around the uh the network effects the same way that facebook grew is the same way that bitcoin is growing now um you you have the early adopters that are able to use it when it's clunky and terrible and buggy and broken um and are just kind of interested in the technology and then you get the next set of people that come in and they're like oh this is you know kind of cool maybe i can build something on top of this maybe we can help build the infrastructure for it and then you get the next people that build the the really customer facing stuff and then you get the customers um, and I think we're kind of in that sort of phase now. It's very comparable to the dot-com bubble. 
Um, but Bitcoin itself is a deflationary currency, effectively. Um, there is a limited supply that can never be in increased. And that means that the value, in theory, as long as it is still useful and has utility, will continue to go up. You know, when we say volatile market and we're talking that the price of it's gone up is we are comparing it and basing it on fiat currencies. Yeah. And, you know, looking at it from the idealistic, you know, what actually is Bitcoin? You know, I think that's kind of, for me, the most important thing. Like, I, I, I love, you know, obviously everyone would love to make money and stuff, but really, do you want to cash out into fiat or do you believe in cryptocurrencies and you want to actually be paying for stuff in cryptocurrencies? You hear people who say buying a pizza or some people buying a Lamborghini or a house in Bitcoin. Yeah. And to me personally, that is actually what I would love to do. I do believe in the cryptocurrency. Now, whether it be Bitcoin, whether it will be a successor to it, obviously everyone's trying to make a successor or at least trying to put their own spin on it at this time. Um, but what actually then is Bitcoin and kind of some history around that? So Bitcoin, uh, to give to give the basic explanation, Bitcoin is what you said earlier. It's decentralized trust. Um, so you have a system whereby you can send a token that is worth whatever value it's worth. People can put their own value on it. That's effectively what the market does. You can send a token from one person to another in what is effectively just a big spreadsheet, a big ledger. So you have a bunch of addresses on in one column, and then you have how much is assigned to each address in another column. And the network overall uh, of, of nodes and computers that are, are running full nodes, basically, which basically means they're storing the entire thing, are updating in synchronization with each other um, to make sure that no one can edit that and say, I've got 10 Bitcoins instead of I've got one Bitcoin, for example. And so this, this happens through blocks, which is where the blockchain bit comes in. So you have blocks that are 10 minute um, periods of time, basically, in which a bunch of transactions go into. And so those transactions get verified. They get put in there by, by the miners, effectively. They, they're effectively picking the transactions, taking the transaction fee. Um, and, and once it's in there, that block is uh, cryptographically sealed, basically. So you cannot go back and change anything that has happened in that block. Once a transaction is done in Bitcoin, it is final. It is not reversible. Um, but that's also how the trust works because of that, because of the fact that you know that there is no way that someone can reverse something. If you could reverse a transaction, you know, um, four blocks ago in Bitcoin, then that has a ripple effect on any transactions linked to those accounts in the future, which is why you can't do it. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and that's the thing, the beauty of the blockchain and why a lot of banks probably they don't like the idea of the currency of Bitcoin, but they love the idea of the blockchain. And a lot of people are trying to apply it into different things. And it is a beautiful system where it's just a linked list, as you say, of blocks that are just every one of them hashed on top of the other just to make sure yeah. that we can't tamper with previous ones. And, you know, talking about like the game theory and the incentives behind it, like, what are the incentives then for people to play the game nicely, like to run, you know, the same node software and, you know, to mine, et cetera, and whatnot? So this is actually where things get interesting. So mining is pretty simple. Um, there is a limited amount of space in every block currently. Um, if, we, if we're going to exclude SegWit for this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's a limited amount of, of uh, space in a block for transactions to fit in. And so that means that everyone has to put in a fee um, after you get to that maximum number. And so the fee will go up when it's during busy periods or, you know, if you really want your transaction to be found, confirmed quickly, um, or you can put in a lower fee if you don't mind waiting maybe an hour or something. But basically, the, the miner's incentive is that all they really want to do is make money. They earn Bitcoin by verifying transactions. They also have to make sure that they are in sync with everyone else, because if they're not, then they're just wasting their computing power, because overall, the overall network has to reach a consensus. And... Whoever has the, the, the longest chain, as it's known, uh, wins, basically. 
So so it's the people that are all agreed um, and that are effectively computing next blocks fastest. So that basically means that if you were to attack the network, um, so let's say that you, you bought a bunch of miners and you wanted to basically mine a block and then change some of the transactions in it because you mined it, right? You can you can prioritize which transactions get in there and which ones don't and things like this. Um, you would have to have more computing power than 50% of the network. It's known as a 51% attack. And the Bitcoin network is more powerful than the top 10 supercomputers on the planet combined right now. So it is basically impossible. <laughs> basically impossible. It's, ne it's never happened on Bitcoin yet. And I think that's the thing. The incentives with it is that, you know, you are using up, like the, the you know, a miner is using up their own money in electricity and in compute power and, you know, using up that hardware to do this. So to, to attack the system and the note, you're detrimenting yourself. Yes, you're costing you know, yourself that, a lot of money. Of that's it. So you must have a you know a good use case for it. And if you don't buy by the rules, people are just going to ignore and disregard that block and go on with another chain. Yes, exactly. Um, and, and you know, because I mean, when you think about this, and this is one thing you know, reading the white paper, you think that this is a great idea, and then you think, yeah, sure, yeah, 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 and you just think of you know maybe as you say this, where people are going to you know maybe there'll be attacks and all this, and you think, well, this is great, but people are going to find ways around it and whatnot. Um, you know, as time has shown in practice, it's worked. And I think that's the best thing about Bitcoin is it's still here. You know, people have their websites, you know, the obligatories of it and everything that it's going to die, but it's still here. People haven't. It's a honeypot that, you know, it's the biggest honeypot because if you hack it, if you be able to try and, you know, break it, you're going to get lots of money out of it. I mean, even more so now with the amount of money that's been pumped in, you know, to it, it just, the confidence grows with every block. And it's just a fascinating system where one guy or one girl, someone, pseudonym, you know, Satoshi Nakamoto decided to make the system that works in the practical world where you know a lot of things which can be theory just never come to fruition but this did and this has been working and i think that's where people have really shone a light where like oh it's still here and it's still chugging along yeah i mean it's it's almost been a decade now uh people i think a lot of people don't realize that that it, this this was created following the 2000 2008 2009 financial crisis um and it's actually in the times isn't it there's yeah. the times block <laughs> yeah yeah um, it's it's crazy. It's, it really is crazy that it's it survived this long without having any major issues whatsoever. Um, there there have been there have been issues on some other cryptocurrencies, like there was the the DAO incident on Ethereum. But but um, that's also kind of a cool thing about what this has led to is that the fact that it's open source um, is probably the most important decision that was made about Bitcoin. If they made the system and it was closed source, like it would never have worked because people couldn't verify the code and stuff. But also, it doesn't allow for people to innovate and try and create different versions and different ide ideological versions of it. Even so, you know, I've I've seen some some of the really early cryptocurrencies that were created. There was one that basically had a time limit on how how quickly you had to spend your coins before they just got destroyed. Um, and it had a much higher inflation rate. <laughs> and so the idea is it's trying to power this, you know, consumer economy where you, you get money and you have to spend it, <laughs> um, which is a really cool idea to play around with. Uh, and it's given people this massive sandbox where they can do this kind of stuff. It's, it's really, really interesting. Obviously, then trying to split Bitcoin, the currency from the blockchain technologies. So, I mean, it's very hard to because obviously a lot of the blockchain technologies require this idea of either tokens or a currency of some form, a coin of some form to be able to you know, run the system for incentives and stuff. Yeah. But actually, Bitcoin as a currency, how, how does it actually change the way then we view money and that we want to bank and stuff? Like, What is the vision behind it? 
So I think the the original vision from Satoshi was that he wanted Bitcoin to get to a point where um, if you if you ignore any scaling issues, everyone can use it um, on their mobile phone, on their PC, on anything with an internet connection, um, and in theory even beyond that with things like paper wallets and things. Um, and and you no longer need that middleman. That's the key thing that Bitcoin does that that people. Uh, often forget about is that you don't have a middleman. So right now, if I want to send money from here to my friend in Argentina, that's going to cost me a substantial amount of money, and it's probably going to take about a week to get to him. But my friend in Argentina has Bitcoin. (laughs) Um, He has a Bitcoin wallet, and I can send him Bitcoin, and it will arrive to him, even with a low fee, within two hours. Um, And and if I I prioritize it, or even if I use some of the other... um, different chains that are available or services that are available, it can basically be instant. Um, I can send in money within two seconds across the world. Nobody can stop me from doing it. And that's that's the big innovation um, that Bitcoin was kind of designed for. Uh, the underlying technology blockchain, of course, can be used for a bunch of different things because there's nothing really to say that it has to be money that you transfer. It can also be data. Um, and that's that's where a lot of um, corporations and things are starting to get involved and starting to look at how they can potentially use it for um, supply chain management and things like that. So you mentioned actually, you know, the Bitcoin is a finite uh, currency. It's finite; it has a finite supply, mm-hmm. and that's unlike fiat currency. Yeah. Um, so would you mind kind of like you know spelling out the difference between the two? Yeah. Kind of like how they work. So effectively, fiat currencies are managed by a central bank, and in most cases, actually, the central bank isn't even like attached to the government in any way it's uh, like this self-contained unit that the government go to and ask to do different things and they normally they normally agree <laughs> sometimes they don't but normally they agree um and so the way that it works is that generally speaking most governments tend to run um budgets at a deficit quite often which means they don't have enough money to pay for everything and so they go to the the central bank and they say well we don't have enough money to pay for everything that we want to can you print a bit more <laughs> <laughs> and so that's what that's what the central bank does they they print a bit more they turn on the printers yeah, and they start yeah they turn on the printers and this is this is what inflation is so when you hear inflation most people actually associate it positively because they think of their bank account and they think oh i'm getting one percent inflation a year or two percent inflation a year that's great you know that's free money for me in reality unless that number is higher than the inflation rate for the cut for the entire country and the same goes for your salary um then you are actually losing money um because more money is being printed which means that everyone's money is being devalued effectively isn't it a game that we'll lose eventually like the, theory, i mean yes. obviously yeah because yeah, i mean i'm holding funnily enough I, I was sad enough to buy i bought a couple of uh zimbabwean notes <laughs> uh, dollar notes uh just for some historical perspective and i am a trillionaire now so i do like the fact that i'm a trillionaire <laughs> uh, my girlfriend thinks i'm an idiot with it but i just thought it has to be done uh, and obviously that is where you know hyperinflation and inflation just goes crazy and the printing just carries on and on and on yeah so that's that's the situation that happened in Germany. Japan has come very close to it recently. Um, there's there's you know a lot of people would think that hyperinflation is really just around the corner for for the global economy because once one of the major economy goes one one of the major economies go into that kind of period of having to massively increase inflation just to keep their you know society going, then effectively that will have ripple effects on the rest of the world because we're so much more connected than we used to be. But basically, uh, hyperinflation usually occurs because a country has an awful lot of debt and it just can't afford to pay it. And the the thing about the inflation is when the bank prints this money, 
they say to the government, you have to pay this back. And obviously that doesn't work because they've just printed the money. So unless unless the government can also print some money to then give that money back to them, um, there's there's no possible way of paying it back because of the interest that is on top of it. Um, so so eventually, in theory, the system should collapse. Now, it's lasted a lot longer than uh, a lot of people would expect it to. Um, you know, every, every year there's another conspiracy theory about a country here or there that's about to go into hyperinflation, but it doesn't really tend to happen very often. Venezuela is the most recent example of where it's happening, um, which ironically is a place that Bitcoin is very popular. <laughs> But yeah, it's. Uh, I, I think it's something that's misunderstood by people uh, quite a lot, actually. And I think it's something that really the wider public needs to be taught about. And if and if you're listening to this and you you still don't understand it after this, I really urge you to just do a bit of research. Like there's a couple of documentaries or whatever you can go and find um, to watch about this stuff, and and it will teach you exactly exactly what's going on and why it's bad for you, unless you are <laughs> one of the lucky people that gets a, a nice pay rise every single year. Uh, it's absolutely insane. And like, you know, this does then bring on to, you know, the fact of them being finite and treating, like, say, like Bitcoin, where we've like gold, where there is a finite supply. I mean, one thing with Bitcoin, actually, that really, you know, turned my head as well was the fact that you we take money for granted. We take the concept of money or value for granted. And I know I do. You know, you just think of money and you think, well, this is just and it's just kind of an underlying thing within our kind of world we live in, that we have money and that this is the way it works and stuff. But working out what is value and why it costs you know, what makes value and then that really with bitcoin because it's something that's completely trying to shift that and disrupt that kind of technology and that kind of ideology it really does make you really rethink that yeah definitely so i think the the main thing that really gives national currencies value um fiat currencies is the fact that we have to use it right we are we are told that if you go to a shop in the uk you have to spend pounds because that's what they accept if you try and give them a dollar bill they'll say no and that's because the government has said you have to accept pounds. That is legal tender in this currency, in this country. And the same goes for taxes. We will only accept pounds for taxes. Now, this situation is about to become very interesting because, as you are probably quite well aware, with Bitcoin, um, no one can force you to spend money. No one can forcefully withdraw it from your account. And you can't necessarily, if you're very careful, even tell who owns a wallet. Um, and so what's going to happen is there's going to be a bunch of people soon uh, that are making a lot of money from capital gains tax. And some of them will say, no, I don't want to pay tax. And the government will try and, you know, force them to do so. And what will probably happen is that the government, although they keep saying that they're not going to support Bitcoin because they want their national currency to be the main thing, will have to do so in order to entice people to start paying some tax. Um, so it's <laughs> it's going to be a really, really interesting situation to see how different countries approach this problem. You've got some countries which are really embracing it and saying, yeah, we accept it now. We're going to you know, make it super easy for you guys and all the rest. And you should base your companies here, by the way. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, exactly. We're going to get some money out of this. Exactly. Um, and then you have other countries which are going the opposite direction saying, no, this currency is not even legal to use here. If you're caught with it, like we will arrest you and we will take seize your computer and try and get access to it and all the rest of it, um, which has happened in a few countries. It's happened in um, Russia, for example, and then they reversed it and then they changed it again. And <laughs> um, but but realistically, the the truth of it is that nobody really knows how this is going to affect things because, you, as you said, we have this currency that now is going up in value compared to everything else that we used to think had a lot of value we used to think that the pound was a really good stable currency 
But when you compare it to Bitcoin, it's it's really not. I think it Bitcoin has exposed just how how little um, things are worth and how much we are effectively being ripped off by a, a very small chunk of people in the world that are controlling these kind of things and have influence over it. Uh, in, even if you think about it from a banking perspective, when when the money is printed from a central bank, the first place it goes is to the banks for the banks to lend out to people. And so because they get access to it first, effectively they feel a dampened effect of, compared to everyone else on what it has on the economy because it hasn't trickled down through the entire economy yet. They get free money to lend out to people um, and they get to charge interest on that. So they're making money on something they didn't even have. Whereas when you get that money, when that money finally arrives to you, you don't you don't have that impact because you have to go and spend it somewhere. You're not making money off of it probably. Um, it's a really interesting <laughs> interesting topic that you can talk about for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it really is, absolutely. And I think that's the beautiful thing about it, which, you know, other than, you know, obviously the technologies that are working because, you know, it's still around, it's the fact of how it's going to affect and it's changing the way people perceive money, the people way perceive banking, you know, the way you look at things and stuff. And you don't you just, you know, things that you've taken for granted, you kind of, you know, twist them around and just see what, what can be um through something like this. And, you know, the fact that, you know, it's it was the old client server nature of a bank where they're closed off and we just get what they tell us essentially you know where now it's an open source protocol like bitcoin where anyone can see anything you know anyone can vet the code anyone can write their own version of the code if more people want to use that version great it will carry on using that but you know it's very much kind of just like the open source movement of you know linux and all these and how they how have they ever worked you know and all this but it, it works because the, the you know the, the vast majority will have a consensus on it and carry on um it's just yeah it's an absolute fascinating fascinating piece Moving on from that, then the other thing is obviously we've kind of highlighted it is the blockchain, and we've kind of discussed some bits in there. But it's you know one of the big things, obviously, with Bitcoin, and Bitcoin drives a lot of the prices of other currencies or alt currents, altcoins, and things. Um, and those are places where people are getting you know people who missed in quotes the big you know Bitcoin you know kind of you know huddling and stuff or whatever you want to call it you know from the you know from the few past you know they're trying to make wins now and you get traders and stuff who are playing a lot with these and people are pumping and dumping coins and stuff and you'll see a lot of youtube videos of people talking about coins that they'll pump and dump and all that horrible things and whatnot um, and you'll get things like icos and things like initial coin offerings and i'm just wondering kind of like for you know for you what are kind of some of the main altcoins that have appeared and have stayed around and that have you know some true value um, so one of my favorites right now that I've been talking about quite a lot recently is uh, Dash. So Dash is currently, right now as we're recording this, the fifth largest cryptocurrency behind Ripple, Bitcoin Cash, and Ethereum, and Bitcoin. Um, and Dash uh, was actually a, originally a fork of Bitcoin that then turned into um, what was called Darkcoin. And it was primarily used actually on the dark web. Um, so this was after... Basically, after the Silk Road um, incident happened and, and the FBI caught him and people realized, oh, you know, Bitcoin is actually reasonably traceable. You have to be very, very careful not to be caught. Um, a bunch of people created Darkcoin, which basically has a mixing service built into it. Um, and then that later evolved into Dash um, and rebranded into Dash. And Dash actually has a, a bunch of really innovative, cool ideas. So earlier on, I mentioned that it has a fund. So... Currently, um, Bitcoin, the way it works is that miners earn 100% of all of the fees that go to um, creating new blocks, basically, um, verifying transactions. With Dash, they've split it. 
And what they've done is they've given 45% of it to miners, exactly the same as Bitcoin. And they've given 45% of it to masternodes, which I'll explain in a minute. And they've given 10% of it to this fund uh, in the middle, which is a, a DAO, a decentralized autonomous organization. So what this means is that basically uh, this money all goes into a, an address and that address is a multi-sig address. So it can only be spent from that address if lots and lots and lots of people all sign to agree to spend it from that address. And the people that have the power to do that are the masternodes, um, which again, I'll explain in a minute. But basically this this fund is designed to be a marketing fund for the entire currency. And most of it at the moment is actually being spent out in Africa to educate people in, in Africa and actually give them some free dash um, in countries such as Zimbabwe uh, and Kenya and uh, a bunch of countries around that region uh, where they where they have, everyone has a smartphone over there now and everyone has even 4G actually in most of these countries. Um, but they still have a terrible banking system. In fact, most of these countries don't even have banks. <laughs> um, people people are used to trading the physical physical currency, you know, cash in hand, and even started to innovate in things like mobile minutes where they transfer minutes to each other. So Dash is spending a bunch of money over there to try and start educating people over there on what a cryptocurrency is, how to store it on your phone, and how to transact with other people with it, and how easy it is. And that's what that fund's going to at the moment. So the people who vote on the fund the masternodes. Um, earlier on, we mentioned that Bitcoin has miners which verify the transactions, but miners don't necessarily need to store the entire blockchain, um, and and general users don't need to store the entire blockchain. So a node is something that stores the entire blockchain on a PC somewhere, connects it to the internet, and just opens it up and says, "Hey, anyone, if you want to see what what the current state of the blockchain is, I'm open. You know, you can connect to me and have a look at it." Um, and so Dash realized that there's a problem with scaling potentially um, on Bitcoin in that if the block size increases and things like that, then it becomes quite costly to run a node. You know, you have to have an internet connection that's dedicated all this time. You have to have effectively a dedicated PC, even if it's something really small like a Raspberry Pi. And most importantly, you have to have a lot of storage space because, you know, it's not incentivized at all. No one gets anything for running a node on Bitcoin. Apart from the good, uh, warm feeling if yeah. you go on like Reddit and stuff and say, oh, I've just made a new node. Yeah, Look at me. Exactly. Yeah, thank you. Exactly. I've done that a couple of times. <laughs> <laughs> but at the end of the day, there will come a point where it's costing people a lot of money to do it. And the only people that will be interested in doing it will be the people making money out of cryptocurrency. So that's why miners do it. And that's why some of the big cryptocurrency companies do it. And then you have the the good people doing it out of the generosity of their own, you know, their own heart. But Dash realized that this could potentially be a big problem in the future. And so they created masternodes. Um, and masternodes basically are people that get paid for running a full node. Uh, but they have to live up to very stringent um, specifications. And they also have to effectively put a bunch of money on the line to say that we promise not to do anything bad. So this is effectively proof of stake. Um, and so they have to put a thousand, I think it's a thousand, a thousand dash um, into this wallet and lock it up and they can't spend it. They can't do anything with it. It just sits there. But they earn part of that mining reward and it gives them the ability to vote on proposals. So they have a lot of impact on on what goes on with the currency. And it's it's basically great for people that are really invested in it and people that really want to see it work and succeed because they have influence on how to spend the marketing budget. They get to help um distribute the the blockchain to everyone so everyone can have access to it and they also provide other important functions such as the things i mentioned earlier the mixing service is an optional transaction fee basically that you can spend 
It's called private send now. So you can do a private send transaction, which will mix it up with loads of other transactions so that no one can see what you're sending. Um, and you also have something called instant send, which is probably the single biggest advantage I think Dash has over everyone else, which is that if you use instant send, you have to pay a slightly higher fee, but the master nodes agree that the miners will take this, basically. They, they effectively, they see the transaction, they say, you know what, this is important. The miners are definitely going to accept this. You can take this payment now. You don't need this to be put into a block yet because we guarantee that it will be put into a block. Um, and so what that allows is two seconds transaction times, which means that then you have uh, you have the ability to use this in commerce exactly like you do with contactless payments. And like we talk that. about Visa and MasterCard yes. and all that fun stuff, don't we? It competes with all of it. And the, the beauty of the whole thing is that the Dash masternodes um, and the miners, everyone in this ecosystem is getting paid to do it enough that they can scale. So so at the moment, if Bitcoin goes to, let's say, let's say in the future, it goes to 25 megabyte blocks. So every 10 minutes, there's another 25 megabytes being added to your PC. And you've got, you know, millions of people connecting to your computer. <clears throat> How can you afford to run that node? You know, it's going to cost you hundreds and hundreds of pounds a year, potentially. Um, and and so, you get nothing for it, and you get apart nothing. from the warm fuzzy feelings, exactly. you know. And this is exactly. not fair that the miners get everything, and you're getting nothing for actually keeping the system alive. Exactly, exactly. And so Dash has replaced that and given people that option, and they've come out with this roadmap that involves insane levels of scaling through hardware on the nodes. Um, so they're talking about custom um, NVIDIA Tegra uh, GPU architecture and things like integrating with like massive, huge arrays of RAM to compute all you know store all of the data before it can be written to the hard drives which will be a massive raid array of hard drives and ssds um also that it can keep the network growing really really quickly really aggressively without having to compromise on software or anything else or or transaction fees most important that is amazing so could, i mean hypothetically then so someone who is you know believes in the in the network wants to get involved they have to you know put in lock in say a thousand worth of dash and then they can use say a dedicated pc that obviously over time will have to be increased based on yeah. you know the fact of you know over time but they can participate in this system and get rewarded yeah. you know and yeah and feel part of the system and actually yeah help it progress yes exactly that's fact. That is amazing. That that is obviously one of the things with Bitcoin, which does shine light on. And then obviously we have the Segwit two stuff. Which I'm sure if we have time to talk about and stuff, you know, this brings on with the you know the miners having too much power, and this really does help distribute that and kind of you know level it out. And also then the ten percent um, marketing you know fund and stuff is just a great way of being able to encode that in. It's like almost encoding its own you know kind of survival in itself yeah. to you know keep it going it's brilliant yeah, and, and that fund now is worth uh somewhere in the region of about four or five million dollars a month um which is very useful <laughs> well i can understand why you're very very interested in that that does sound fascinating and, and like because obviously there's other uh, you know private coins and stuff like monero and so have you looked into any of those yeah monero is also a great coin it works in a very different way to dash um in terms of dash mixes up transactions whereas monero really just secures the actual transaction itself um, rather than just puts it into a big, you know, Dash is effect effectively taking like if if a transaction is a grain of sand, it's taking that grain of sand and putting it into a bucket with a bunch of other sand and mixing it all around and then sending it out to where it needs to go. Um, whereas Monero is taking that grain of sand and putting it in a little lock box and keeping it safe and then sending it to the other person who has the key to unlock it. Um, that's that's the best way I could explain it. 
Um, there's 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 other privacy coins that are good as well. There's uh, there's a fork of Dash that's called uh, Pivx, which has been around for about two years now, one one and a half years, something like that. Um, which is pretty interesting. Instead of using proof of cert, proof of work, it uses proof of stake for the mining side of it, and it's also um, implementing more of Monero's kind of technology for the privacy side of things. It's a slightly more privacy focused version of Dash. Um, yeah, I mean, th- there's there's a bunch of stuff. Uh, <laughs> I, could, I could talk all day about them. Um, you know, I think I think the platforms are probably the the next most interesting uh, subset of of blockchains, which is uh, things like Ethereum, basically. And that's it. Yeah. So, you know, Ethereum kind of came out because Ethereum, uh, reading up about it, came out of the idea of, I think the guy who started making initial coin offerings, he had a coin. I think, I can't remember exactly. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it came from that idea. And then it's this idea of actually making a Turing complete computer on a distributed ledger, which just is amazing. (laughs) So, So effectively, Ethereum is a blockchain that stores more than just transactions so you can actually you can actually write very small uh, contracts on it um effectively like a function in encoding so you could you could have something that says uh if someone sends uh 0.1 ethereum to this address then let's create another token entirely um and like so a little subset of data and we'll send that back across using the same network to that person to their same wallet address and everything um, for them to to store. So effectively, that's created stocks. That's created an ICO. Um, and that's how an ICO works. But there's also way more cool things. So some of the really early things that uh, Vitalik himself actually discussed as like possibilities are things like, let's say self-driving cars become really prevalent in the world uh, in the future and everyone on the planet has them. How do you decide who gets to overtake someone? Well, you could set up a really cool little smart contract between all of the cars where you can pay a slightly higher transaction fee on uh, your journey to your car, (laughs) and then your car uses that transaction fee to pay other cars to overtake them. Uh, And we're talking like tiny, tiny fractions of... Micropayments. Absolutely. so cool. Um, And and that's, you know, a really cool use case for it. And again, this can all be done through smart contracts. So all you need to worry about is giving a, a set, balance to your car or not even that you could actually just say i want to get there in 25 minutes not in 29 minutes for example and then your car say okay well that'll cost you this much and then you send it the transaction and it automatically sends that to all the other cars that it knows already are going on the same route uh, and pays them to be able to overtake them um <laughs> same for toll roads same for parking same for you know if you take cars just as one example you know it, it applies to so many different things and and that's why companies like BMW and Mercedes are actually both working with blockchain technology, because they understand that eventually uh, there's a, there's an ICO. I've kind of gone off on a tangent now, but there's an ICO called um, uh, Parkbyte, right? And this is basically a cryptocurrency uh, token that is designed for parking. So currently, like the best thing we have in parking in the UK, at least, is the ability to pay on your mobile phone, and yeah. it's like woo, yeah, and 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 that's pretty cool, right? But what's even cooler than that is giving your car a budget, going into a car park, parking in your slot. Your your car, the car park knows where you've parked, and your car knows the car park. So your car just sends a transaction to the car park for that car parking space for the exact number of minutes that you are in it for. Um, automatically, there are no tolls, there are there are no like machines or anything like that. You don't have to send a text. You don't have to do anything because your car does everything for you. 
Um, and that's something that already exists and is usable right now. Um, that's actually being piloted around, you know, around the UK and a few other countries right now, um, that system. So uh, that's, that's just one example and one of the early examples of what can happen using uh, these decentralized, um, effectively token, token networks, really, um, smart contract networks, such as Ethereum. And there are... So is that using things like the e, what is it, ERC20? Yeah, that's what's... That's the standard yeah, for it. That's currently the standard. There are actually quite a lot of... So there are a bunch of other cryptocurrencies that have their own version of that, effectively. And even Ethereum are working on new versions of, of that kind of token to give it more power and, you know, be able to do more things with it. So the idea then, so sorry. So the idea then with Ethereum is you you put on a, so you have a program that's autonomous that control. Essentially, you write it up once and it runs in itself on the actual distributed ledger, yeah. and it can do things as it as it wants. So it's self regulating, regulating because everyone has to agree on it and everything like that. Um, there's obviously been like some problems with it, as you say, the Dowler attack and things, because programs aren't perfect and bugs do occur. And unlike a simple web app where you can just push another fit, you know, push a fix and it's like all gone. Unfortunately, something like, you know, these smart contracts, they live forever. Yeah. Um, so the, the recoding inside of them has to be extremely watertight. Um, and other things like the parity wallets and things. Would you mind going into some of those kind of like but, how? Yeah, I'll talk about the DAO because I think the DAO is quite interesting because it actually resulted in a fork as well in Ethereum. Um, so the DAO was basically, um, uh, it, it is exactly what I described the um, the Dash fund as earlier, pretty much. Um, so the DAO was uh, a token that was created on Ethereum, and everyone who owned some of the tokens got voting rights on what to spend the money gener generated by that network was, you know, what, what they could spend it on. So the idea was that everyone invests in this massive fund. They have loads of Ethereum that they've transferred to get the tokens that allow them to vote on what to spend the Ethereum on. And they decide to spend the Ethereum on a bunch of startups. That's the idea, right? So they can say, you know what? We really like this project. Let's go and give them some money. We expect it's going to make us some money back in you know, two years' time or whatever. And it was all working pretty well for several months. It actually became the second biggest uh, cryptocurrency uh, behind um, uh, Ethereum and Bitcoin. So third biggest, not the second biggest. Um, so it was doing really, really well. But importantly, there was a really, really crucial bug in how the tokens themselves were created. Um, and effectively, it was just an order problem in how they had written the code. So normally what happens when, when you have these kind of um, these ICOs is that someone sends some Ethereum, let's say, to the smart contract. The smart contract says, oh, thank you for the Ethereum. I'm going to go and store that somewhere else. And then I'm going to send you back uh, the tokens that you've paid for right, in this new ICO. Uh, and it's it's pretty simple, like a three-step process, right? But what happened in the DAO is that because it was very, very early, I think it was actually pretty much the first big ICO that had ever happened, um, aside from MasterCoin and Ethereum itself, they created uh, they created it in the wrong order. So what would happen is you send, you send the Ethereum to them, they get the Ethereum, they're like, okay, cool, uh, here, we're going to send you the token, and now let's go and save that, store that Ethereum safely somewhere. And so there's a very important problem there, which is that they are securing the Ethereum after they have sent out the trans the tokens. And so someone basically managed to perform an attack on it where they would send the tokens and then cancel it. And of course, at that point, the, the smart contract realizes that it's received the tokens. So it sends out its own tokens. It sends out DAO tokens. 
Um, and then it goes to secure the Ethereum, and it's like, wait, it's not here. It didn't actually arrive. Like the transaction, we can't we can't roll back on. Yeah, this. It, it was a fake, and and so the guy performed this attack, you know, lots and lots and lots of times, and generated at the time it was worth about twenty million dollars or something um, worth of, worth of DAO tokens, which of course he then sold on exchanges for actual cryptocurrency. So he he was acting very quickly to try and make money out of it, um, and as a result, the only way to fix it, because as you said, contracts live forever on Ethereum, was for uh, Vitalik and the Ethereum devs to agree between themselves, look, we have we have to just fork off. We have to undo every single transaction that has happened since that attack happened, roll back to the block before it, and then continue. And It does bring up a bit of a philosophical debate, doesn't it? Where it's like, it was that the right thing to do? Exactly. Obviously. That's, yeah. that's why it forked. That's exactly why it forked. Because a bunch of people uh, who didn't agree with that, uh, around 10% of the community didn't agree with that move. They were like, no, code should be law. You know, people people know the risks. They should do their due diligence. And, and like code is law. And, th- and that's how we want it to be, to be. And so they decided to stay on the old chain where the hack had happened. Um, and they, they still fixed it. They fixed it a little bit later. And, you know, things things changed and they kind of went their own path. But it still exists today. And it's called Ethereum Classic. Um, and, and it was purely because of that ideological belief of no, transactions are meant to be irreversible. If one person has the power to uh, you know, rally a bunch of developers and, and the community and say, no, we should reverse transactions, then that is not decentralized and we don't agree That's with it. And, and that's it. And I mean, that's the brilliant thing with being open is the fact that you have this decision you know, to go off and start your own one then that has this history. Um, and, and you know its own belief it has the previous history of ethereum you know before but then it has its own history you know own future yeah exactly but obviously it makes it very confusing for people to come into the space because <laughs> they if you don't understand what a fork is it gets very uh, yeah you know confusing I mean, uh, there are a lot of people that i i see on a daily basis that, that come on and they buy ethereum classic because they think it's ethereum and i'm like no that's not ethereum <laughs> <laughs> and the same is happening increasingly with bitcoin now because you've got bitcoin cash and bitcoin gold and people uh, yeah, I was going to I was going to kind of move on to that, actually, where, you know, the scale, because actually one interesting thing with Bitcoin, you say code is law. And that is, you know, that's the beautiful thing with Bitcoin is the source code is is the contract is the law. You know, whatever's written in that source code for Bitcoin is how the stru- you know, the protocol works. There's not a written up white paper on how exactly it's where it's the source code that actually, you know, is the actual defining document, which is just a fascinating way of thinking that code is law. Yeah, yeah. Um, but but moving on, yeah, with, with Bitcoin then, and you mentioned scaling, and scaling is the biggest thing. With the more popularity, the bigger it gets. I think we're on, like I don't know how many gigabytes now. It's like 107 gigabytes, maybe the whole blockchain at this time. I'm not 100% sure. Um, but, you know, obviously that puts a lot of into, you know, intense on kind of storage for people like who want to host the node and stuff. But, you know, one of the big things is obviously like getting up to the Visa and the MasterCards. And if you're believing Satoshi Nakamoto's initial dream, which was that this can be used as a day-to-day currency, you know, we need that. You know, obviously, you know, it's fine if for, I think it's the six confirmation rule where, you know, we can, you know, I'll send you something, you know, maybe it's an online transaction. I'll try, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll send it to you. I'll wait an hour. I'll confirm that that's a thing and I'll send you the good. But once if it's something for like a newspaper or something quick, you know, we need those quick instant, you know, instant you know, transactions. Uh, and one of the naive ways of doing this, uh, short-term naive approaches, is to increase the block size. And that's how something like Bitcoin Cash came about. So you've just mentioned that. So what actually then is Bitcoin Cash, Bitcoin Gold, and bog standard Bitcoin? So uh, we mentioned before about the blocks and, and the block sizes and how a block is made up of transactions. 
So every transaction takes up space. And currently with default Bitcoin, the way it was created, it has uh, a one megabyte maximum size for blocks. And so effectively, uh, if, if let's say every single transaction is, you know, uh, one millionth of that, then you get one million transactions in that time. So it's been calculated that Bitcoin can handle roughly three transactions per second in total, if you count up how many go into all of the blocks and how many blocks there are in an hour or, you know, in a second in this instance. Um, now, that obviously is nowhere near enough uh, to compete with the likes of Visa and MasterCard. And so Bitcoin, uh, the vast majority of the community decided we want to work on this new technology called SegWit and Lightning Networks. And so SegWit, Segregated Witness, is effectively kind of compressing transactions. It's taking a bunch of the data from within transactions and saying, you know what, we don't really need to store this the way we are. We don't need to store um, all of this data in each individual transaction. We can store it in the overall block, for example, um, and, and things like that. And tra like transaction malleability and things like that, the problem of being able to identify transactions. Yes. Um, and so, and so it, it fixes the transaction malleability problem. And it, it also, at the same time, um, makes the, the size of the current block more efficient, basically. It actually slightly goes over the size, but that's a bit too complex to explain right now. But uh, it goes slightly bigger than one megabyte in reality. Um, but it allows for, for these things to happen. And most importantly, it allows for lightning networks and side chains. And so these haven't really been built out yet, but effectively it's uh, a bunch of off-chain transactions. So your transaction doesn't necessarily happen on Bitcoin. It happens somewhere else. Um, you can do payment channels. Uh, and basically what happens is, let's say you're using Coinbase, right? Which is really, really popular Bitcoin exchange and wallet. Uh, if you're sending your money to someone else on Coinbase, do they really need to send that information to the blockchain? Or do they just need to like collate 20 transactions at a time on their own, add them all together, and then put that transaction on the blockchain? Um, and so you, ca you can have this system whereby you're, you're putting more and more transactions um, effectively into a second layer uh, network that communicates with the original layer, which is Bitcoin, Bitcoin's blockchain. Um, some people disagree with this because they think that it is, uh, it's asking for trouble and people could, you know, in theory, steal coins and do dodgy things on their own side chains, um, their own transactions. So Coinbase could lie and they could maybe... Mm. Because you're using third parties again, you're exactly. kind of bringing in a layer of trust, aren't you? Exactly. Again, exactly. Um, and and so that's that's kind of the problem. But some of the other things that it allows is um, atomic swaps, which is done via the blockchain and can kind of work with side chains that are already existing, working, open source cryptocurrencies. So the example for this is uh, Litecoin. So Litecoin was one of the first crypto, I think it was actually the second cryptocurrency created after Bitcoin. It's exactly the same as Bitcoin in almost every regard, except that they've got four times as many total supply, coins total supply, and their uh, block time is only two minutes. And pretty much apart from that, it's almost identical. Uh, they have a bunch of the same uh, devs that started on Bitcoin and moved over to it. And good old Charlie Lee. Yeah, Charlie Lee, who is an absolute legend. You should definitely follow him <laughs> on Twitter. He's amazing. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> uh, and and basically, uh, Charlie's philosophy for Litecoin right at the start is that, you know, Bitcoin's going to reach this point. Um, it's going to reach this point where there's so many people wanting to use it that it just can't handle the volume. So I'm going to create another currency called Litecoin, which is almost identical to it, but faster. It's just faster and it's smaller units and it's easier for people to kind of handle. 
And he's always said the same thing for like five or six years now. He's been using the same phrase, which is that you use Bitcoin to buy houses and cars and you use Litecoin to buy cars. <laughs> um, and now that the, uh, the atomic swap transactions have been enabled, you can actually use the Bitcoin network uh, to pay for things in Litecoin and vice versa with Litecoin. It will automatically convert um, Bitcoins to Litecoins. That is mind-blowing. So you do a transaction, it collects your transaction, a bunch of other people's transactions, it automatically converts it to Litecoin um, once you've got a, a big enough amount. Um, and then it, you know, it uses that to spend it or whatever. And then the same happens in reverse to get you money back and things like that. So it's really, really, really ingenious. Um, and I think that that is, that is definitely probably the, the biggest reason that you should own Litecoin, <laughs> I would say. But yeah, it's, it's super, super interesting. Um, there's a bunch of other things that it potentially enables, like channel payments, which are a bit more complex, where if someone's, if someone's already paying someone, you can jump into their transaction and include your transaction in their transaction and things like this which are, are really complex it's working on a few altcoins but it's not working on bitcoin or things like that yet so uh i think uh, effectively bitcoin have bitcoin and bitcoin cash the big difference is that bitcoin have said we want to take a software approach to this we don't believe that making uh making hardware more important and 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 stuff is going to be worth it because we think that people will stop wanting to support the network because it will cost too much we want to do everything in software whereas bitcoin cash has said no we need to just make things bigger and keep and keep segwit away so we can do a6 stuff so we can and, still have our and, advantage. and yes we can still use our sneaky a6 that are kind of cheating <laughs> oh good old roger ver uh <laughs> No, that's really interesting. And then the other one, obviously, is Bitcoin Gold, which has just you know came about. And what does what's the kind of impetus behind that? So Bitcoin Gold is actually um, probably the simplest of all of them in terms of what it wants to change. Bitcoin Gold is basically just wanting to change mining. It thinks that mining has become too unfair uh, and that it should have stuck with being viable on graphics cards. Um, so basically, it stopped being viable on graphics cards because people found a way to use the exact mining algorithm that they've chosen to make it more efficient to use on something like uh you know a big custom built computer basically like a server almost uh, and so people started making more and more servers and you have like these massive farms that cost you know millions they are millions. something amazing aren't they yeah, yeah. like looking at some china farm mining farms are just they are just insane yeah and, and it and it costs basically the the level of entry um the bar to entry for getting into mining cryptocurrencies, you can't do it off your own PC. You, know, you have to buy, you have to invest something that you wouldn't normally own in order to start doing it. And it means that there are less and less and less people actually doing it. So you have these massive companies that are run by four or five people, and those, and you, you know, there's ten of them, and that's it. That's your Bitcoin network. It's, it's ten. And that kind of goes companies. away again of the distributed kind of everyone's equal. Exactly. This flat network. Exactly. And so, and so Bitcoin Gold has basically said, look, we found another algorithm that's being used by Ethereum and a bunch of other stuff um, that we want to use, which means it's still mineable on graphics cards. So we're going to allow, we're, we're going to change the, the Bitcoin code. We're going to fork off, change this one thing so that it's a different algorithm. That means that people will mine on graphics cards, which means there'll be more miners, which means it's fairer for everyone and more decentralized. Uh, and obviously with this then you know we all get free currently i mean this is the funny thing and this is where some of like the spikes happen is everyone goes well you get free money with the fork because you know magically obviously it's forking off the chain the current blockchain because the nodes 
software is changing so much that we now can't use old and we can't interact with the old software, like saying using a different, you know, hashing algorithm or something. We spite we we split off and now I've got some Bitcoin cash and some Bitcoin gold. And if I'm lucky, obviously you have to keep your own keys and all that fun stuff, even as you have ownership of it, you're not in control, you know, you don't have the parties who actually access have control over it. You can do these things. Um and I think there's that's where a lot of the confusion happens. And I do think that we're going to be getting more of this. Do you think before we kind of stabilize, there's just going to be a lot more explosion of different forks and different ideas on people just trying to get on the bandwagon of the name Bitcoin because people don't like calling it Bcash and things like that. <laughs> you know, what what's your opinion on that? Um, so I think actually we're going to, we're almost at like the peak of Bitcoin forks right now, I would say. So I think we've probably got like three or four more to come. Like there's, there's Bitcoin diamond coming up, for example, which is like a, it's like a combination of all of the others. Um, <laughs> uh, and, and it's inevitable that there's going to be a few more as well. But I think that the community is beginning to really reject this. Um, and the, especially like the wider cryptocurrency community is saying that this is, this is getting ridiculous. It was like, how do you tell your mum that there's Bitcoin Cash and Bitcoin Gold yeah. and all these other things? If you, you know, when you just want Bitcoin, yeah, and that's the big thing. Like Bitcoin Cash, a lot of people that have heard nothing about blockchain and Bitcoin and how it works would just think that Bitcoin Cash is maybe like the the ones that you can spend. Maybe you can't spend. Yep, yep. <laughs> maybe Bitcoin is the savings account, and Bitcoin Cash is what you spend every day. Um, maybe maybe Bitcoin Gold is when you invest it. <laughs> you know um, the. So, so these names are definitely confusing, and I think they've been made confusing on purpose, to be honest. Um, I think that that's how these guys plan on pumping up their coins. And the important thing about these forks is you really have to look at the motives for why they are creating these forks and exactly the, the specifications of the fork. So Bitcoin Cash was created to increase the block size and stuff, blah, blah, blah. They've been debating that for a long time. It's kind of a legitimized fork because a lot of people do disagree in using, with using SegWit because of the things we mentioned earlier, that potentially it can affect decentralization, even though their method also affects decentralization. Yeah, that's the funny thing. <laughs> but in a different way. Um, it doesn't appeal to them. It obviously doesn't hurt yeah, them. Yeah, exactly. So, so you can kind of understand that one. You can kind of get behind it. But you've also, if you, if you look at all of the people right at the top of that, the big figures such as Roger Ver, uh, John McAfee, uh, the fake Satoshi, <laughs> Satoshi Nakamoto. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, if if you look at all of these guys that are at the top of this and involved in it, Jihan Wu, they're all people that own huge, huge, huge amounts of Bitcoin. And so when it splits, they're doubling their money. That That is their and They can switch between the two and they can just transfer between the two yeah. to keep the prices and, going and up they and can down. Man, exactly. They can manipulate because the market cap on uh, Bitcoin Cash is so much smaller than Bitcoin. And they combined own so much Bitcoin that they can convert all of their Bitcoin to Bitcoin Cash, make the price go up by three or four times the value. And then everyone else buys in thinking, oh, this thing's going up. Maybe it's going to take over. Maybe it's like, maybe it's working. And then they convert it all back again. And they, they're just making free money out of people. Um, that, that's, that's what I genuinely believe is happening with Bitcoin Cash. Uh, there are people that would disagree with me. And I, and I can definitely understand people thinking that they don't like SegWit and they want to go down that kind of scaling route. But my, my retort to them is, why don't you use something like Dash instead then? <laughs> because because absolutely they have fixed that problem already um and they are already a big cryptocurrency they're almost as big as bitcoin cash um and with bitcoin gold it was it was a different approach bitcoin gold actually did something that a lot of uh early early cryptocurrencies did which is something called a pre-mine 
people used to call it a pre-mine scam where someone would create a coin and they'd pre-mine without giving anyone else access to the network they would pre-mine let's say a million of the 21 million and then they'd let other people join and this is so they've already got a good foot in exactly and this is actually what bitcoin gold did so they did the fork and then they didn't give anyone access and they mined it they sat there mining for a while and now they've given people access and so you have this situation where they've got they've made loads of money from this already they're out they don't care if it succeeds anymore because they've made their money they're going to just go and exchange that for bitcoin or for another cryptocurrency, and they don't care about the project anymore. Um, so even even if like the ideas sound good, you really have to like dig under the surface and look at what are the motives for the people building this. Where is their money? You know, where is their money sitting on this? What is their incentives for for doing these actions? No, absolutely, absolutely. So it's so interesting, and and I think we've just hit over the hour mark. So I'll, I'll try and keep it short and sweet <laughs> for the end. I'm really sorry, man. I know you're busy. We've got a busy day. A um, couple of quick ones, like you know, we mentioned private keys. Like, how do you store your private keys? What's your kind of way around that? Um, so I generally try very hard not to store anything on uh, an exchange for a very long period of time. Effectively, the rule is if if you control the key, then you control the money. As simple as that, you should never give your key to anyone. It's like a password, but even worse <laughs> in yeah. a lot of ways, because you can change your password, but you can't really change your private key. You have to send a transaction from it. So um, what I generally do is I have backups of the private keys um, that, I, that I have uh, paper backups, and I also have uh, backups on cloud services that I trust um, that are also then encrypted. <laughs> and and I, I just use a general purpose wallet. So the main wallet I use at the moment is Exodus, actually. Um, and it's, it's a bit risky because someone could break into my house and they could steal my PC, but they would still have to uh, unlock my PC um, and then unlock my wallet. So you know, they've got to break There's through. a couple of levels there, yeah, isn't there's, there? there's a few yeah. levels there. Um, but I, have you looked into like, any hardware wallets? Yeah, so hardware wallets are really, really good if you want to just hold long term. But obviously, I'm more of a trader, so I, I quite That's actively it. move things around. And and I'm at my PC every day as well, so <laughs> hopefully I would spot someone trying to steal it. <laughs> yeah, like, what are you doing here? <laughs> um, and of course, I have backup keys. So even if if someone stole my PC, I could very quickly just download the key, move the money, and, yep, then, and it's they've gone. got nothing to move. But yeah, hardware wallets are really useful for if you want to store long term. I would still say definitely make sure you keep backups of the private key somewhere else as well. Um, you could even use two hardware wallets or three hardware wallets if you wanted to. They're pretty cheap. Like there's the the Trezor um, is one that's pretty common. Um, what's the other one called? I can't remember now. Ledger. Yes. Ledger Nano. Ledger Nano and Ledger Nano S. Yeah. Those are both really good. Yeah. I mean, I've I've not really had that much experience with them. I used one of them once um, and it seemed pretty easy to me. Uh, no, it makes sense. I mean, obviously you're trading. So, you know, you want a hot wallet that you can move things exactly, in that, you know, exactly. in and out of. Um, but but if you are someone that is really, really not techie, um, in which case it's kind of weird that you're listening to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, welcome. I think we've confused you for the last hour and seven minutes. I hope you've enjoyed it. <laughs> um, but if you are someone that doesn't really trust yourself that much tech-wise, you know, you, you're the kind of person that every time something breaks on your PC, you just give, give it to someone else to fix, um, then it's probably better for you to use something like Coinbase in reality. That's it. That's it, and they've got their own cold storage kind of vault systems and stuff, don't they? So at least you entrust in them. If you can't trust yourself, at least trust someone you feel is going to be more strong, you know, more quick than you. Now, and and finally, like I'm, you know, I couldn't have you on without talking about like the like the day to day life of a trader. Like, what does your day consist of? I'm really, I'm fascinated by it. I'm reading lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of white papers. 
and and news and everything else so i as i mentioned the two different schools earlier i think i i lean quite heavily towards fundamentals um thought experiments about where things are going exactly the kind of thing we just talked about with bitcoin cash and bitcoin gold is is the kind of research i was doing as soon as those things were proposed thinking okay how's this going to evolve what's their plan how do they make money out of this is that against how i can make money out of it um so there's a lot of that um there's a lot of looking at charts and looking at numbers going up and down <laughs> but uh well, if, you've got that awesome was it four t like four monitor setup yeah which I'll, I'll have to put i'll put i'll put in the show notes that you link to your website where you've got it it looks <laughs> badass man yeah um so yeah i i basically you know i have two screens of charts on it all, all the time i have my main screen for my etoro which is where i do most of my trading um, and then I have a second screen for everything else. So I actually, I live stream because I, I trade on a social network effectively called eToro. And the purpose of this network is that you can follow other people's trades. You can post, you know, comments and information and, and thoughts on things. How, how do you find that, by the way? Does it does it add pressure or like, do you kind of just make it be part of your day-to-day life? Um, I think so. When it first started, I felt quite pressurized in the first like month or so, so where I was getting more and more people copying me. Mm. But I feel you know entirely and then your dad copied you and then you realized oh crap now i've got to be good. <laughs> well the thing is i was managing his investment before i started using etoro i started managing his investments for him anyway and then i stopped and went on to etoro and and then he kind of came back to me on etoro and joined etoro as well um, <laughs> i know that guy <laughs> so what? yeah now he's he's pretty happy with uh with my returns um but yeah, eToro is basically like Facebook for trading. So you can post loads of stuff and you can look at everyone's profile and you can see all of their trades. You can see their stats and stuff. You don't see how much money they've got, but you can see the percentages. And by pressing one, bu- one button, you can copy someone. Uh, it's called copy trading. And there are loads of good investors that trade in lots of different things and stuff. I actually copy a few other people myself um, on my second account. But yeah, so I have uh, I have about 10,500 people copying me right Jeez. now. Uh, that is pretty amazing which is 17 and a half million dollars of other people's money um that is copying and you're just sitting at home in front of a couple of computers reading some white papers and uh making those decisions that is so cool yeah yeah I know. Well, it's a great world, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, talking about cryptocurrencies and all this, you know, it is absolutely amazing. Yeah. Oh man! But so I say, thank you so much, dude, for coming on the show. I'll put all the things in the show notes, things about like eToro and stuff like that. And you're more than welcome back on any time, man, because it's yeah, it's just been super awesome to chat to you about this stuff. Cool. Well, ho- hopefully, everyone else enjoys it as well. <laughs> <laughs> all right, then, audience. Well, it's been another great episode, and we'll speak to you again next week. Goodbye. You've been listening to Three Devs and a Maybe. You can contact us at contact at three devs and a maybe dot com. Or follow us on Twitter at the number three, Devs and a Maybe.